I'm really thrilled that you guys are here, especially students. Like I said this earlier, but I just love when students are back in Marshall. Uh, I always get like really excited knowing that uh, I get to meet students when you guys first get back to campus. You guys just make Marshall feel like it's, you know, things are happening here, right? So, uh, but that starts for me when I usually get an invitation, it's happened the last few years, uh, to come and to pray at the football field house. Uh, this morning we got to host all the newcomers in our 930 worship for all the newcoming uh, football players at ETBU is pretty fun. Uh, and uh, seeing those guys, I think, made our church look a little more intimidating. Uh, I'm not sure, but uh, it was uh, really fun to have them in worship and participating with us. But I got to go and pray over a lot of their lockers. And it's kind of a cool deal. The coaches have done this several years, inviting uh, a couple pastors and, and uh, some administration and people to come and pray over their lockers. I love it. I, I was not a football player, though. I don't know if you could tell by my frame. Uh, I wasn't like... That wasn't my thing. I was, uh, did more like soccer and tennis and those kind of things, which fit more my, my body's type. Uh, I loved playing sports. I did spend a lot of time in locker rooms doing those things. And there was a common thread, though. I was thinking about it leading up to uh, today's message uh, with the scripture we're going to be looking at today. Uh, there's a common thread in locker rooms that I, just, I found kind of curious, but uh, it was always before a game. We would get the coaches like pregame speech and everybody would get hyped up, right? Uh, and then all the hype would just immediately die when everybody got knelt together uh, in the middle of the room, like crowded in and, and prayed the Lord's Prayer. Uh, that was just a distinct memory I have, praying the Lord's Prayer before games. And then it's like, as soon as you say amen, everybody jumps up and they're hyped up again. I, I never really got it. Uh, but I actually didn't even know the Lord's Prayer until I got involved in high school sports. I grew up in church. Uh, I, I probably should have known the Lord's Prayer, but I didn't have it memorized. So I did what most good Christian people do when your high school sports team is saying the Lord's Prayer. I just kind of mumbled along. Yeah, does he, you guys, anybody had a similar experience? Someone saying the Lord's Prayer and you're going, our Father, okay, amen. Uh, and then you get pumped up and ready to play, right? And then I kind of wondered even, that's where I learned the Lord's Prayer. Uh, it was a cool team moment, you know, it was like this bonding kind of moment. Uh, and then we'd go out and play. I just kind of remember why thinking, why do we pray this only on game days, uh, you know, when nobody else really seems to be interested in prayer at all, any other day of the week? You know, what is the deal? And I think I kind of figured it out. It was probably because we had tried everything else in order to win and nothing else had worked. And so we're like, let's just sprinkle some religion on the top of this thing and, and go to the God in prayer and maybe we'll win a game. Well, guess what? It didn't work. We tended to lose the games that we were a part of. Now I went to Hallsville High School and, uh, you know, soccer back then was just, it was new. We, we weren't that good, okay? So we lost a lot of games. Prayer didn't help. The Lord's Prayer didn't help. But that's exactly the point that Jesus is making in the Sermon on the Mount when he teaches the Lord's Prayer, uh, Matthew chapter 6. And so I want to invite you to open your Bible up to it. We're looking, studying the Sermon on the Mount in the last few weeks and the next several weeks. And uh, that covers Matthew chapters 5 through 7. Three full chapters where Jesus is saying a lot of things, covering a lot of ground, but it all really goes to emphasize one main point. And this is how we've said it the last few weeks, and I want you to see it again. It's that we were created for a good life under the rule and the reign of a good God as partners in his kingdom. Ultimately, that's what the entire Sermon on the Mount is about, is about the kingdom of God and how God has invited us into partnering with him 
to make his kingdom a reality as we live under his good rule and reign. And ultimately, that's the best way to live. And in fact, I'll just catch you up. For those of you who haven't been here, here's the ground we've covered uh, up until this point in chapter six. Jesus compares God's kingdom really to earthly kingdoms, any kind of kingdoms that you might understand and think of. And he's teaching us that God's kingdom is revolutionary. It's counter-cultural. God's kingdom is sometimes often counterintuitive. Like the way we think about life, God kind of turns that around and makes us think about it a different way. That he's saying life, God's way, in God's kingdom, is actually the only way to be truly blessed. But the only way to enter and exist in God's kingdom is something that we can't achieve on our own. It's righteousness. In other words, perfection. This is an impossible standard. So how do we then get into God's kingdom? How do we exist in God's kingdom? Well, we realize that Jesus offers us righteousness. Jesus gives us the gift of his righteousness. And we see as he explains in chapter, the end of chapter five and now into chapter six, that his righteousness is a righteousness that comes from the outside in to then change us from the inside out. This is what Jesus is teaching. So Jesus offers us this true righteousness. It's not a righteousness that's achieved. It's one that's received, and it's one that changes us. So true righteousness is more than skin deep. Chapter 5 was all about how uh, the things that we do that someone might consider bad, we ought to look at at a heart level. We ought to do an autopsy of those things and realize that there is a deeper reality So it's not just do not murder, it's if you've ever thought of someone with anger in your heart. He's having us look inward and deeper to see this greater righteousness. And then in chapter six, he turns his attention to things that we think make us good. Things like giving to the poor, or as we'll study today, prayer, or even fasting as we'll study next week. And he says these things that make us good, we also need to do an autopsy of the heart. We need to look inward and deeper to realize there is a greater righteousness to be lived out, one that we cannot achieve in of ourselves. It must be received and then begin to change us. So ultimately what Jesus is saying is motive matters more than motions when it comes to religion. Now I talked about the Lord's Prayer. And in locker rooms, we would just go through the motion of the Lord's Prayer. Maybe you have gone through religious motions. Maybe even today when you came into worship, the last 20 minutes have just been going through the motions. The call of Jesus to you today is to look inward and deeper, to realize that there is a greater righteousness available, a transforming righteousness that leads you to the truly good life that he describes as only lived under God's rule and reign as partners in his kingdom. You can live for something greater. You can be a part of something bigger. You can have more fulfillment and meaning in your life when you heed the words of Jesus. And so today, he's talking about motive mattering more than motions, and he makes this clear in chapter six with a summary verse right off the top in verse one of chapter six. If you got your Bible open there, you look at with me, uh, with me and it says this. Jesus says, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father in heaven. 
That's kind of the summary verse. Then we've noted that he gives these three examples, giving to the poor, prayer, and fasting. Uh, Today we're gonna focus on the second and the central example of prayer that starts in verse five. Jesus gives these examples of how not to do this, followed by an example of how true righteousness is actually lived out. Isn't it interesting to think that a righteous action can actually be sinful? Jesus helps us clarify this. And the second example of this is prayer. Look with me starting in verse five of chapter six. Jesus says, whenever you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites because they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by people. Truly, I tell you, they have their reward. But when you pray, go into your private room, shut your door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. When you pray, don't babble like the Gentiles, since they imagine they'll be heard for their many words. Don't be like them, because your Father knows the things you need before you ask Him. Now, there's three ways not to pray here, right? Jesus is taking this culturally expected religious activity and he's saying he's done by the same kind of people, these hypocrites in the same kind of places, the synagogues, the street corners, for the same motive to be seen by people and they ultimately get the same reward. You can follow this pattern in verses two through four in verses five through eight and then later verses 16 and following as we talk about Fasting, so it's a repeated pattern. It's the exact same structure. And inside verses five through eight, uh, Jesus gives us three ways that we might appear righteous on the outside, but if we live it that way, it'll actually reveal unrighteousness. So three ways not to pray. Number one, not praying at all. Not praying at all. A lot of us fall into this trap. We go days, sometimes weeks, sometimes months with, before we realize I haven't been praying, but we know we're supposed to pray. So how does that work out? Well, if you look at this in verse five, it says that the first time and then again, a few verses later, whenever you pray, whenever you pray, which means that prayer is assumed. And in the first century in Jewish life, it was assumed. It was just a normal part of the religious activity. It was a cultural expectation. People prayed. There were calls to prayer, public calls to prayer. People would stop in the street and face the temple and begin to pray out loud even on occasion. There were always someone praying. It's an assumed practice in Jewish life. It's an indispensable practice in the Christian life. But we struggle with prayer. And I think a lot of times we struggle with prayer simply because we don't practice it enough. I was thinking about the guys who, uh, who learned to juggle. Um, one of our ETBU, um, uh, you know, kind of ministry uh, apprentices a couple of years ago was an incredible juggler. His name is Christian Phillips. Anybody knew Christian Phillips? This guy can juggle like crazy. He can juggle almost anything. I never saw him juggle a blade, uh, but I think he could do it. But have you ever seen someone do something crazy like that where they have like two or three or four like really dangerous items like blades or chainsaws or something crazy like this. And what's your thought when you're looking at them? I'm like, I can barely juggle two tennis balls. There's no way I'm trying that. And sometimes that's how we think of prayer. We've seen other people, we've heard other people pray 
And we think about ourselves as like, I don't have as much understanding as that person. I'm not as good. I don't have the right kind of language. I don't have enough knowledge of scripture, et cetera, et cetera. And so I'm just not gonna try. Well, the biggest reason we don't have an answered prayer in our life is because we have unasked prayers in our lives. So Jesus, first right off the bat, how not to pray is to, to not pray at all. He wants us to engage in prayer. Eugene Peterson, on the topic of prayer, he once wrote that uh, we don't have to understand a crowbar before we put it to use, right? I mean, someone hands you a crowbar, you know what to do. He says, understanding comes with use. Prayer is the same way. We practice it, we gain understanding. But if we're gonna pray more, if we're gonna practice prayer more, we gotta avoid the other two errors that Jesus identifies here in verses five through eight. Going on in verse five, he talks about the error of praying to impress people. The hypocrites, Jesus uses this word again for the second time. He'll use it again in the verses we cover next week. That word hypocrite means actor. Uh, it's really simple. Like when you turn on Netflix uh, or you go to the movie and you see someone, they're portraying someone they are not. That's exactly what hypocrite means. And in the first century, they would have understood that. Someone pretending to be something they're not. So you've got people in the synagogues, people on the street corners. They're voicing these verbose prayers, trying to get the attention of people. They're playing the part of righteousness for the applause of men. And Jesus says, they get men's applause and that's it. That's the only reward they get. Now, growing up, we always had a, at my church growing up, a deacon who would offer a prayer before a time of offering, like giving, you know, passing the plate kind of thing. I don't know if you ever grew up in a situation like that, but I can remember even as a kid knowing the difference between someone who prayed authentically and someone who prayed for attention because you just knew, like, there were the prayers that went on and on and on. There were the prayers that had all the right cliches and words and everything in them, and you just knew, like, something is up here. There's always something a little off, and I can't say that their heart wasn't right, but I just wonder was there any sense of them wanting people to think that they were really good at praying? I remember people being known for being good at praying and being asked more often to pray than others, but then there was always the person who would be kind of stumbling over their words and maybe a little bit like voice kind of shaky, like a little nervous, and, and they would offer just a simple prayer, and you would just know like that, they've got it figured out. Like they know, they're humble. Um, they're, they're even like they just want to lead well you know they want to serve the church and you just know you, that they're praying authentically so you see that example my aunt uh, I love my aunt she's uh, she's you know always thinking about things differently she was the first person to say this to me and I just really love it she said uh, that there's people who talk normally but then when they start praying they start praying in King James you ever heard anybody do this with all of these and thous and thighs and everything, it's, what just happened? Uh, or my favorite is when there's like a parent who yells at their kid at like the dinner table and then offers like the prayer for the food. <laughs> and it's like, sit down and shut up. And then they're like, dear Lord, thank you. you know, it's like, what just happened here? You know, something is not right, okay? Jesus is calling us to not pretend to be someone or not. He's saying, if you wanna pray in a truly righteous way to let the righteousness of Jesus, which has come inside from the outside to then change us from the inside out it means praying authentic prayers being real now then he says how do you counteract that well verse 6 says to do it privately 
to go to your prayer closet, to pray in secret, where the Father who sees in secret then will reward you. This is the, po- the point in the sermon where like all the introverts in the room are going, yeah, finally, like someone gets me, right? Like I don't have to do this out loud out in church, right? Well, except that probably the example of Jesus' life uh, would add a little bit to that. Uh, Jesus isn't condemning public prayer. Jesus isn't saying we should never pray in public uh, or that it's okay if we stop praying in public. He's just saying we need a heart check. Remember, that's the whole point of the sermon, right? It's to look inward and deeper, even at things that we think make us look good, to do an autopsy of the heart to recognize, is it something that we want to draw attention to ourselves or is it something that we want to be an outflow of the righteousness that Jesus has put in us? So prayer is this example. It's not just about the motions. It's about the motive. And that includes even the act of going into your prayer closet, which is good and right. But if that's the only place you pray, then you may be missing a part of the story. The question then isn't, you know, how good are we at praying in public? Or the question isn't then, how often do we pray in in private? The question we really ought to be asking when it comes to our prayer is, are our public prayers an outflow of our private prayers? That's a really convicting and challenging reality to face. Hopefully we are praying in public. We're gonna talk about the Lord's Prayer in just a minute. It starts with our Father. Something that connects us to all Christians for all time. Being under the rule and reign of the same God part of the same kingdom. We are together in this. We ought to be praying in community with one another. We're not lone ranger Christians that just go to our prayer closet to do our spiritual thing and then go back out into the world. We ought to take it with us, but our public prayer ought to be the overflow of our private prayer. That's exactly how Jesus lived. So we don't pray to impress people. Third, we don't pray to impress God. Praying to impress God is is a a false righteousness. It's an unrighteousness, although it may appear righteous on the outside. Verse seven, Jesus calls out the Gentiles. The non-Jews is really all it is, the non-Jews. And he says they will babble on and on and on, right? It's essentially the, what it, if we would have just extrapolate the meaning of that word babble, it would just mean they go on and on and on and on. They just are repeating themselves endlessly to garner the attention of the divine. So this one's less about uh, having the attention of men, and it's more about trying to coerce the attention of the divine. And in the case of the pagan Gentiles who did not believe in the one true God, uh, then they would just go on and on and on in hopes that that would gain a response from the God that they worshiped. And we do this all the time. We, we think that if, if we're gonna live our lives here on this earth, for someone other than the one true God, which we may just do kind of unconsciously at first, you know, for something like materialism, right? This is an example of a pagan God, a false God, something that gives us a false hope, that if I get more, if I have more money, if I have a better job, then ultimately I'll be better off. And we just go on and on and on in search of that stuff and hoping that it'll give us a response. Well, this is what Jesus is talking about in the terms of prayer, is they're looking for a response from someone who's not there. And so, of course, they're going to go on and on and on. So uh, it reminds us of a great example from the Old Testament. Centuries before uh, Jesus, 
in the Old Testament book of 1 Kings. An amazing story happened at a place called Mount Carmel. Uh, it was uh, the prophet Elijah. He was uh, in kind of some competition with prophets of the false god Baal. And the prophets of Baal uh, had sort of called Elijah out and they were, they were really challenging him. And so they came up with this contest that they would all build altars, two altars uh, on this mountain. And whoever could get their God uh, to rain fire from heaven to consume the sacrifice on their altar would be the one true God, right? The, the real God. And so Elijah feels like pretty confident in this. Well, listen to how prayer plays out in this story. Elijah gives, you know, preference to the prophets of Baal. And he says, okay, build your altar. You guys go first. You know, you're, if your God sends down fire, then great. We'll say that he's the real God. And so 1 Kings 18, these prophets of Baal build their altar. They put their sacrifice on it. And they begin calling out to their God, begin praying to Baal. And their prayers go on and on and on. Their prayers are like babbling. Uh, their prayers are, they're crying aloud. They're wailing. They're falling on the ground. I mean, there's all this huge display of what would appear to be devotion and righteousness, except there is no response. Elijah even gets to the point where he says, maybe Baal is asleep. Maybe you caught him at a bad time. Maybe he's in the bathroom relieving himself. Maybe if you just keep going, then eventually he'll answer. Well, finally, they're just worn out. They give up. Elijah steps up to the plate, and instead of offering any crazy kind of prayer, any long, verbose, uh, you know, uh, offering to God. He just quietly prays a simple prayer. Man, just a couple sentences. And immediately, God rains down fire, a fire so intense that it's, it just laps up not only the sacrifice, but also the altar, which had been drenched in water, leaving nothing but scorched earth. And this is an incredible testimony to who God is and to how he desires prayer to function. Because verse eight in Matthew chapter six, God already knows. God already knew what was needed at Mount Carmel. God already knows what you need. You don't have to babble on. Prayer is not an incantation. Prayer is not a magic formula of words that you need to repeat endlessly until something happens. It's simply an ask. It's simply aligning yourself with a God who is alive and active and aware of who you are and what your needs are and who stands ready to answer. That's what prayer is. So we don't need to babble on. We just need to ask I love what Tim Keller says about this, about answered prayer. He says, God will either give us what we ask for in prayer or what we would have asked for if we know everything he knows. Pretty powerful, isn't it? So what we're learning about prayer now is that as Jesus is talking about a righteousness that comes from the outside in that transforms us from the inside out, prayer is not transactional. You've done this, I've done this too, where you go, oh God, if, I would, if you'll just give me this circumstance or this relationship or this resource or whatever, if you'll just give me this, then I promise God I'll live the rest of my life for you. I'll never doubt you. I'll never question you, right? We think of prayer as transactional, that we're just trying to get something from God, but that's not the case at all. Actually, tr prayer, as Jesus teaches, is transformational. 
And it's not about getting something, it's about becoming something. It's about God changing us from the inside out because he has given us the power to change through his righteousness that came from the outside in. So the Lord's Prayer, verses nine through 15, is really a model for us about how to pray in a way that helps us become who God wants us to be. So we know how not to pray. How do we pray? Jesus gives us the example. Look with me in verse nine. Chapter six, verse nine, Jesus says, therefore you should pray like this. Our Father in heaven, your name be honored as holy. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not bring us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And then in verse 14, he makes a shift and he goes a little bit deeper on verse 12 about forgiveness. He says, for if you forgive others their offenses, your heavenly father will forgive you as well. But if you don't forgive others, your father will not forgive your offenses. Now, we've heard the Lord's Prayer. We've often recited the Lord's Prayer. We've done it in field houses and locker rooms, on sports fields, etc. But what does it mean for us? How does the Lord's Prayer designed to change your life? Here's what I mean. We can spend days extract, extracting meaning from every word. We can look at every nuance of it. And when you open up commentaries on the, this section of Matthew chapter 6, you know, it'll go from like, there'll be a page or two on each set of verses. And then when you get to the Lord's Prayer, it's like chapters. You know, so we could go on and on and on about the Lord's Prayer and meanings. But what I would like to do is show you the function of the Lord's Prayer in the context of the Sermon on the Mount. There's a pastor who said, we have to treat the Bible like a corral that we can't just get on one horse and ride it off into the sunset. But a lot of times that's what people have done with the Lord's Prayer, right? We go, well, that's a cool prayer. We're gonna jump on that horse and we're just gonna ride it off into the sunset. What I wanna do is bring that horse back into the corral and show you how it functions in its context, what Jesus is trying to do through this whole sermon. So what's the function? Well, let's look at the structure. Prayer is not only the central point about righteousness being more than skin deep. Remember, we've got giving to the poor, we've got prayer, and then we've got fasting, which we'll cover next week. Prayer is not only the central point about righteousness being more than skin deep, the Lord's Prayer is the literal center of the entire Sermon on the Mount. It's in the middle. And in terms of first century writing, especially in the Gospels, the way they order things and structure things is not necessarily historically uh, sequential. It's actually placed in point to make a point. And so when this is at the middle, we ought to be paying attention. It's not just the central example, it's the center of the whole Lord's Prayer. Really, the Lord's Prayer helps us see what Jesus is trying to communicate in the whole sermon. So righteousness is more than skin deep. The Lord's Prayer is at the center. Uh, this is the central point of that truth. What I wanna just posit to you is that prayer is central to finding your way in life in the kingdom of God. Remember, this is what the whole sermon is about. The whole Sermon on the Mount is about what is the true kingdom of God like? What is a true life of blessing? How should I live? Prayer is central to your formation and finding your way in life in the kingdom of God. And the Lord's Prayer gives us bearings. 
If we're finding our way in the kingdom of God, the Lord's Prayer gives us a north and south bearing. It also gives us east and west bearings. Here's what I mean. The first half of the Lord's Prayer gives us our north-south, or you could say our vertical bearings. And that means how we exist in relationship to God, heaven, and what is to come. And then the second half of the Lord's Prayer gives us our bearings for our east-west, our horizontal way of being. In, order, in other words, the way of being in the here and now, in this life on this earth. How do we relate to God that way? So let's look at it. Look with me first at the first half, the vertical bearing uh, in verses 9 and 10. Jesus says, therefore you should pray like this, our Father in heaven, your name be honored as holy. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So without going into detail on each one of those things, briefly, this is Jesus' desire is for our bearings to be set by three main things, by God's glory, by God's reign, and by God's will. So as you pray, why do you pray? Do you pray to get something from God? Or do you pray to position yourself under God? It's just a different way to think about it. To pray, even if you just say, God, I know you're different. You're holy. You're, you've been forever. I love how Haley prayed earlier that God has been. He's always been. He is not created. He is creator. That's how we keep his name as holy. So we pray that God's glory is above all, that his kingdom is the one that matters, not my kingdom. I'm not building my kingdom here. I'm building my platform or wanting people to see me. It's that I wanna pray in a way that positions me under God, under his lordship, under his rule and reign, and then that I wanna accomplish what he wants to accomplish, that I'm not about accomplishing my desires in this life, but I wanna see God's desires come to fruition. So then you see how prayer is not about getting, it's about becoming. It's about establishing that bearing vertically, that we are under God in his rule, in his reign, as partners in his kingdom. Remember that part? That leads us to the truly blessed life, a good life that he desires, and that's the horizontal relationship. How do we exist in relationship to God here and now? Well, the second half of the prayer. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and do not bring us into temptation but deliver us from the evil one. Essentially, there's three ways that we can position ourselves in relationship to God to live the good life under his rule and reign as partners in his kingdom in the here and now. And that's that we rely, we depend on God for our daily provision. That we depend on God alone for our forgiveness and also for deliverance from evil. Now, Jesus expands on that idea of forgiveness in verse 14 again, uh, but I want you to remember the main point of this section of the sermon is that true righteousness transforms us from the inside out, right? So when Jesus says something that sounds hard to hear, like forgive others or don't expect God to forgive you, what he's really doing is he's saying emphatically in the negative sense what he's trying to emphasize in the positive, which is that those who truly know God's forgiveness will be known by their forgiveness of others. That's really what Jesus is trying to say. So we depend on God for our forgiveness. That leads us, remember the inside out, that leads us to forgive others. We depend on God for our daily provision. 
We depend on God to deliver us from evil, which is a reality in the here and now and also in the life to come. He will accomplish it. He gives us our bearings in the north and south. He gives us our bearings in the east and west. This is the function of prayer, is so that we can be reoriented to the life God wants for us. Not just the Lord's Prayer, every prayer. God wants us to communicate with Him in a way that we can take the shape of His kingdom here on earth. Because we have our north to south, and we have our east to west. But I just want to lastly draw your attention to the intersection of both of those things because they do meet the life to come and the life here and now. It happens right in the middle of the Lord's Prayer at the end of verse 10. So we're talking about the center of the Sermon on the Mount, the center of the point that true righteousness is more than skin deep, and now we're talking about the center of the Lord's Prayer. So this is a big deal. The center of the center of the center of the entire sermon is this phrase, on earth as it is in heaven. This is the intersection of the life to come and the life that is. The kingdom of God is where heaven meets earth. And what God desires for our life now, in the here and now spiritually, the good life under the rule and reign of a good God as partners in his kingdom, what he desires for us now spiritually will one day be a physical reality when Jesus returns to make all things new, to right all wrongs, to conquer all evil, and to dwell with man forever. This is the good news. What God started in Genesis 1 and 2 with creation, he promises in Revelation 21 and 22 at the other end of the Bible that he will finish by making all things new. And this prayer is a way to orient ourselves to the bigger story that God is telling. To orient ourselves, to get our bearings north and south and in east and west, to recognize that God has us here as part of his kingdom, as believers in Jesus, to make a difference on this earth for eternity, to live on earth as it is in heaven. So Christianity, in terms of Jesus' leadership in the Sermon on the Mount, is not as much about getting to heaven as it is about joining with God to get heaven to earth that changes the way we live isn't that a little upside down this is what prayer can do as you take what's real in your life to a real God in conversation God wants to reorient you to his kingdom to his ways to eternal life now let me share with you how this plays out. I just want to read you a passage from the New Testament book of 2 Corinthians. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And I want you to see this. And just, I'm going to read it slow so that you can follow along. I want you to listen for some of the themes that we've talked about already today and in this sermon series of Sermon on the Mount. 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 16. The Apostle Paul writes this. From now on then, we do not know anyone from a worldly perspective. 
Even if we have known Christ from a worldly perspective, yet now we no longer know him in this way. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and see, the new has come. Everything is from God, who has reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed the message of reconciliation to us. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. Since God is making his appeal through us, we plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Do you see the intersection of heaven meeting earth? Your vertical orientation meets your horizontal orientation. And then he finishes with this reality that Jesus has been saying for all of chapter 5 in Matthew and all of chapter 6. And he will continue into chapter 7, verse 21, 2 Corinthians uh, 5. He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. See, there is a greater righteousness. It's more than skin deep. It comes from the outside in and it changes you from the inside out. And it changes the way we pray. And prayer becomes a way that we orient ourselves to that greater reality of the kingdom of God. This is the invitation that Jesus gives to you. And so what I wanna do is just tell you the, what the invitation is not. The question is not, how are you gonna become better at praying? The question is not, how are you gonna pray more often? The question isn't even how are you going to lead others in prayer or anything like that. The question is, do you have the righteousness of Jesus? That's the real question of this passage today. Because it's only by the righteousness of Jesus that you'll be empowered to have a life of prayer that really changes you from the inside out. So that's the question you have to answer today. Do you have the righteousness of Jesus. I want to lead you, if you don't, to receive it. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? Maybe just shut out some distractions if there are any around you. Haley and our worship team are going to return and just get ready to lead us through a song. If today you need the righteousness of Jesus, the forgiveness of your sin, would you just ask God for it? You might even ask God in a way kind of like this, like, God, I know that I am a sinner. God, I know that I need your forgiveness. I am not righteous on my own. I am ready to receive Jesus' righteousness to change me from the inside out, to make me part of your kingdom forevermore. The Bible promises that when you submit to God like that, and seek his forgiveness that he will give it. Romans chapter 10 says, when you call upon the name of the Lord, you will be saved, rescued from sin. And so I just wanna give you that chance to do that today. Call upon the name of the Lord, be saved. God can save you here and now. Lord, we thank you for this opportunity to be in your presence. Uh, God, we ask uh, that you would help us not to pray for the attention of men, but to really 
submit to you, to come to prayer as a way to be changed, to be transformed. Thank you for the righteousness of Jesus that cannot be achieved, but only received. May we we be a people who receive it and who are forever different because of it. Your grace is good. God, for those who need to decide to put their faith in Jesus today, would you give them the courage to take that step? Even if it means a drastic life change. Even if it means, I don't know, disappointing someone. Even if it means getting a weird look from someone. Give them the courage to take that step and to tell someone about it. God, for those of us who need help praying, we all need help praying. God, would you just come alongside us? Thank you for your spirit who teaches us. God, thank you that you know our needs before we even ask. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.